We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how you doing? Doing well, Mike. Uh, had a lovely Labor Day weekend. I hope all the listeners out there had great Labor Day weekends as well. Um, or I guess the Americans. I hope the Americans had good Labor Day weekends. For the rest of you, I hope you had good normal <laughs> weekends. But we are back. <laughs> it is September. We are like three weeks away from preseason basketball, basically. Yikes. Is that's kind of weird, right? Yeah, it is. It's 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 quickly approaching. I think uh, I would say, and uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if anything happens between now and then. Because, uh, well, there's some rumors. I guess we it's, finally have a rumor to talk about for the first time since the Kevin Durant saga ended. It's well, we've done our best to fill the void with content, regardless of since the Kevin of Durant saga ended. But yes, the rumor mill is still chugging along, and uh, yeah. yeah, this is a guy who. I, well, do you, do you want to lay it out? You want to lay out all the details? Well, I mean, it, the, the rumor stems from the fact that basically all of the Utah Jazz is for sale. <laughs> they don't want anyone. And that means any player that's good, any player that has any sort of veteran value is uh, on the market to be traded. And uh, that really kind of points at Mike Conley, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Jordan Clarkson, which are all players that they really have no use for going forward. And that means that they're all on the trade market. Of course, Suns fans, anytime there's a, a player that's up for grabs, will, of course, look at those players to, to be potentially traded to the Suns. But even further than that, Gambo, who, as we know, is best friends with Danny Ainge, <laughs> uh, has since reported <laughs> that the Suns have reached out to the Utah Jazz about Boyan Bogdanovich, about potentially trading for Boyan Bogdanovich. So I guess it's time to talk about what the Suns would look like with Boyan Bogdanovich and if there's anything that makes sense for them, right? 
Yeah, can you remind me? I have a pretty bad memory these days. Have we officially mm-hmm. done the Boyan thing on the main feed podcast yet? No, I don't. Because so. I forget what we talk no. about on the main feed and what we talk about Patreon. I forget what we talk about <laughs> no. on Twitter or in the Discord. Yeah, right, I don't right. think I don't think we've talked about him on either. I don't think we've had the conversation yet. But I think like at least this is a guy, Boyan Bogdanovich, who most people know what he is, and I think he's been in the general consciousness of the fan base for a little while now. People have kind of understood at least for the past several weeks, right? It's really felt mm-hmm. like even leading up to this Gambo rumor to actually give us maybe something substantial that this is a guy who's been discussed and I think a lot of people are ready for the possibility of. Um, so that being said, I'm not really sure like where to start in terms of Boyan Bogdanovich, the player. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because, I mean, like let, let's talk about the core of the issue. This is a Jay Crowder yeah. replacement. We've been talking about for right. weeks, Jay Crowder. Uh, dissatisfied with with his stature on the Suns mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Uh, well, we kind of know the reason. He wants to start, and they're probably not going to let him start. Um, so it, the, hypothetically, and we can talk about exactly what a trade package would be, but Boyan Bogdanovich comes in. Uh, you're replacing a whole lot, uh, or, or you're upgrading a whole lot offensively, and you're losing a whole lot defensively. That's basically... Dramatically, the, yeah. yeah. That's He's bad at defense. That's the overall summary, <laughs> the, the very basic yeah. bare-bones summary of what this type of swap would be, right? He's bad at defense, but he is big and like strong, which for his position is, is good, but like can't really move laterally very quickly, which I think watching... Eurobasket has really solidified in my mind as we watch him play with Dario Saric. Uh, but I think it's interesting because I wonder, first of all, if the Suns would even be interested if Jay Crowder was just happy right now. You know, I wonder. Because, well, I guess let me just frame it this way. Do you think, like, say Jay Crowder, Landry Shamit, will we'll stop with just that for now. Jay Crowder, Landry Shamit traded for Boyan Bogdanovich, right there, that's done, no more Jay, no more Landry, Boyan's on the team, probably starts, Cameron Johnson continues to come off the bench. Does that make the Suns closer to an NBA championship to you? Um, uh, <laughs> that's because that's the essential question, isn't it? I guess, yes, yeah. I think that makes them a better basketball team, and I think... You do? Yeah, I mean... I, I'm not sure. Well, I think that's fine if you feel that way. I, I guess if it's just Jay and Landry and we're talking about just the contributions they made on the floor last year, you bring in a guy, look, Mike, the Suns are hurting for self-creation. They need it in some way, shape, or form. Now, there's a lot of ways that they could go out and get someone to to give that, to, to give the roster, you know, that additional edge. And I think of all of those options that we've laid out before, Boyan is, he's one of the lower tier options, right? He's one of the worst at being able to actually do these things. Um, But he's good at it. Yeah, he's pretty good. I mean, look, just the offensive ceiling of the Suns with Boyan Bogdanovich as one of the top five or six minute getters on the team would be off the charts. Now, of course, defense is a thing and Cam Johnson would have to log a lot more minutes in the playoffs. And I think ultimately, look, if you're putting a gun to my head, it doesn't really move the needle towards the championship yeah. much. I think mostly what it does. I don't does, think so either. Yeah. I don't I think, think so. mostly what it does is it allows you to reset chemistry wise and it gives you a slightly different look and maybe just okay. allows some fresh narratives about a team that otherwise is feeling really stale right now. But in my heart of hearts, do I believe that it moves perfect. them towards the championship? Not necessarily. I think what you just said there is a perfect starting point off for the point that I'm trying to make here. What I asked you was Jay Crowder and Landry Shamit traded straight up for Boyan Bogdanovich. Boyan Bogdanovich, by the way, 
33 years old and makes about $19 million, which is hard to get to that amount of money. You essentially need, well, you're starting with Jay Crowder, right? We're under the assumption that that's the only reason you really look at Boyan for starters. And uh, uh, expiring $19 million, by the way, just so people expiring. know. Expiring. One year left. One year left. Yes. And the reason I ask if he brings you uh, any steps closer to a championship in your mind, which I think I agree with you, I don't think it, I don't think he does. And I just think that the Suns are going to get killed by any wing in the playoffs <laughs> at that point because we've seen what Mikael Bridges can do, and Mikael Bridges is best against guards. And anytime a team has a guard and a wing, like any sort of star, any sort of star combination where Mikael Bridges has to guard the guard the wing is going to kill us. I think we're just at that point. And the Suns, yes, they have the offense to fire back, but like that's kind of where the Nuggets stand. And you end up in a, in a place that's similar to the Nuggets. Not to mention, offensively, if Chris Paul is at all faltering at any point of the playoffs, I don't think that Boyan brings enough offensively to make up for that. So the reason I frame it in a question that focuses specifically on the pursuit of a championship is because the Jazz don't really care about Jay Crowder and Landry Shamit. In fact, arguably, they care about no player that they're getting in return. The Jazz want picks. And when you start trading picks, you're under the assumption that whatever move you are making is getting you closer to an NBA championship because you're leveraging the future of the team in order to be better right now. And this is why everyone on the Jazz that's currently available doesn't work for me. Now, I I, I will say that Bogdanovich, I think, is a good player. Everyone? And I'd even... Mm-hmm. And I even think that Clarkson, if we want to have the Clarkson conversation again, no, I don't, which I don't want good. to spend too long. We've done that in the past. Yeah. But I even think Clarkson brings things to a team that's good. Like, I don't really like either of them for the Suns. But on top of that, when you start talking about potentially trading picks... That's to me, I think, when you have to draw some sort of line because what you're doing at that point is you're leveraging the future that you have with the team post Chris Paul yep. to maximize a Chris Paul window. And if you start trying to maximize a Chris Paul window, are you really doing that with Boyan? You know, are you really doing that with Clarkson? I don't really think so. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I think, think that it gets you significantly closer to a championship. Yeah, you're kind of tricking yourself into believing that for a year just because it's something different. But if you squint, it's like the roster kind of falls apart. Look, here's the thing. I don't really give a shit about picks, and I don't think James Jones really gives a shit about picks either. Naturally, we've had that conversation plenty of times before. So for me, it's more about one of the biggest theoretical advantages on paper that James Jones has that we've talked about ad nauseum is he has Dario Sharge, Jay Crowder, and Landry Shamit on mid-sized, mostly expiring or near-expiring contracts. Those are movable pieces. And if you're going to blow two of those on Boyan Bogdanovich right now, it caps your ability because the Suns are like near in luxury tax territory or near luxury tax territory for the extended future. It caps your ability to then make any other moves to continue to improve the roster, right? And and here's and here's here's where I think that. You're right, and you're talking about what James Jones has as far as assets. But my mind goes to, if this team doesn't work, and this is with or without Bogdanovich, but let's say without him, you you just stay with Jay and it doesn't work, and and, uh, I'm of the opinion that Bogdanovich and Clarkson would also not win a championship with this team, or everything would have to go just as right (laughs) in that scenario as it would without them in order for the Suns to win a championship, so a lot of luck would have to be involved. I then say what has to change on the team in the future, and that's when you start talking about potentially trading DeAndre Ayton or potentially trading Mikhail Bridges. 
and looking for somebody that makes a bigger difference on your team that's, in the future. Yeah, that's fine. But just to continue with what I was saying, like, you don't necessarily have, like that's the worst case scenario, right? You're talking about they go into the season and they're like 500 or some shit. What about the possibility of you don't blow these mid-sized assets on Boyan, but you trade for something else right now without using DeAndre and without using Mikael Bridges, right? So it's like, why <laughs> am I going to say the name? Are you going to force me to say the name every week? <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to say it. But Why see, trade? But- how about this? How about this? People know who I'm talking about. Okay. Why trade mm-hmm. Landry Shamit and Jay Crowder for Boyan Bogdanovich and maybe a first-round pick? when you could have someone else who maybe has made all NBA teams in the past. Let's just say that, you know, or like not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, necessarily, no, you're right. An all-star. Not, when you could potentially get an all-star. Right. Right? On the other That's hand, essentially what you're saying. On the other hand, I'm totally willing to accept that a large portion of the fan base is really fucking fed up at this point and is throwing up their hands and is saying, we need shot creators. We don't have shot creators. We didn't make an attempt to replace campaign off the bench this year. We're just hoping that somehow they're going to rehabilitate him. We didn't make an effort to replace Landry Shamit, who had an objectively bad campaign last season uh, or, or season uh, last year. So, you know, I understand that there are a lot of people who are really frustrated right now because the Suns kind of didn't make a real effort to improve uh, post-Kevin Durant, at least not so far. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the mm-hmm. off-season grades, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up, but like Brightside had a good piece uh, just the other day uh, an opinion column where they gave the Suns a D for their offseason, which I think a bunch of people jumped on and said, hey, that's not fair for this reason, this reason, internal development, yada, yada, yada. But it's September now. These pieces are going to start coming out, both from local and national media, about grading the Suns on how they did. And just based on, you know, right now, they have plenty of time until the trade deadline to make make their moves. They don't have to blow all their cards right now. But there is no reason that James Jones deserves better than like a D or an F for the offseason as <laughs> I, it stands because he didn't do anything. I, I think, yeah, I, I, I know. I understand what you mean. You yes. know, so like, look, and, and the, the offseason grades are not necessarily a reflection of how good the team's going to be going forward. Uh, the, a team could just not improve in an offseason or arguably get worse in an offseason and still be very good <laughs> the next season. And that grade could be uh, separate than that. I guess my fear would be if you get to the point where you're like, okay, the, the core construction of this team in a long-term view is not going to work. Now you have to potentially look to, to package some of your young guys for another star next to Devin Booker because Chris Paul is has faded away into dust. And you have no picks to trade or you've traded two picks for somebody like Boyan Bogdanovich. That's terrible. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's terrible. The- they, have to make a, they have to make a meaningful difference towards winning an NBA championship when you start leveraging picks that could affect essentially what Devin Booker is playing with in the future. You know, like you have to think about that. And I understand the frustration. I understand the idea of just sort of collecting more players who are good on a box sheet. But like Jay Crowder's still pretty good too. And he, he and doesn't want to Jay Crowder He doesn't want to be here. Mm-hmm. I, like I'm you know like I'm tired of talking about Jay Crowder. He, Jay, so what? Jay Crowder, <laughs> he's Jay Crowder. Jay, he's a good player. I have nothing against Jay Crowder. He's I a mean, good player. So what but, if he doesn't want to be here? You just play him, right? Yeah, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to trade him, but like, let's not talk about Jay Crowder as what he, you know, what Devin Booker will be dealing with in the future. Jay Crowder by January or February 15th or whenever the trade deadline is, if he's not gone by the beginning of the season, he will be gone by February. Jay Crowder yes. wants to start. He already requested a trade. They're going to honor that request. That eventually. is that is essentially the point that I'm trying to make here. In that, 
you're sort of you're you're essentially asking yourself if, if trading a pick right now is worthwhile enough that the team would be significantly better going forward or you hold on to the assets including the picks to try to save either for a trade at the at the trade deadline which doesn't always manifest it's kind of the hardest time to trade players or after the season ultimately How about this? you have to even factor that we in. we got to move on to our internal development um segment which i am excited for uh i perhaps ironically but uh let, let me ask you this because i'm trying to draw the line here you're out on boyan it seems well, yes. No, I mean, not necessarily. Right? Okay. I'm just out. I'm out for the price that the Utah Jazz are definitely if, asking for. If which this is was picks, I'm just trying to figure out where the line is because I think it's a very fine line right now. If this was Harrison Barnes, would you feel differently, or is he the same? Uh, We've talked about Harrison I think Barnes I would in the past. Feel differently, he's a shot creator. I think I would feel differently. Why? Explain yeah. why. He's a better defender. Yeah, but like enough you know what i mean like we're it's, he's, he's pretty significantly better it feels like we're just dealing with a very <laughs> fine a very fine line here and I, i'm just trying well, to figure out exactly this. where it is let me ask you this let's say you trade let's say bogdan bogdanovich is i mean sorry boyan bogdanovich is available bogdan we'll talk about it on another date maybe he's available too uh but jay crowder say you trade jay crowder cameron Payne, and tory craig for boyan bogdanovich and Jared Vanderbilt. At that point, I think a first round pick is is okay to put on the table, right? Um, I I really like Jared Vanderbilt, but uh, the thing about Jared Vanderbilt is his fit on this particular Suns team is a little weird. Uh, I guess you could make it work. Like I just I don't know where you're finding a ton of minutes for Jared Vanderbilt, especially if like Dario Saric, Bismack Biombo, Jock Landale are all on the, are um all on the team. Let me ask you this: Did you just did you just trade? Who did? Who is the third person you traded? Campaign and Tory Craig, mm-hmm, Jay Crowder, and then you'd have to then you'd have to use the the final piece of that team would be using the taxpayer MLE for Dennis Schroeder. Yeah, you need a because you guard. have to replace you would get Dennis Cameron Payne at that point. Look, mm-hmm, look, so, mm-hmm. Schroeder's probably yeah. I mean, I don't like Dennis Schroeder, but he'll probably do as good a job as Campaign. Everyone that's ever played with Dennis Schroeder seems to not like him, and that, except for Chris Paul, by the way. And that is one of the main reasons I think it's difficult to talk about him because his value on the basketball court is dramatically different than his value off of it, where it seems to be he causes problems at most of the places he goes to. Yeah. Um, I would do it. I would do it. <laughs> but I, didn't have, I don't have such a big problem with Boyan to begin with. I, I, I kind of just want them to do something. I'd like take... T- <laughs> Take that. Yeah, take I mean the, that's how a lot of people feel. I think you're right. I just don't. I don't think take that way. All yeah. the analytical caps off for a second. I just kind of want them to fucking do something. I'm I'm bored. I'm bored with the discourse. I, I'm trying my best. Mike. I am the person really that tries to trade best. every. I'm trying my best, but I, I just want to remind you. I'm the person that tries to trade every player every off season, and I'm saying no to this. You know, well, like, but what you do, what you what you do is different. I'm trying. I'm saying I'm bored. I want stars. I want good players. You, yeah, you trade DeAndre in every episode. What I'm doing is different right now. Yeah, because and that's, Mikhail Bridges too. Yeah, and Mikhail Bridges. Okay, that's fine. If you don't want to single any one guy out, I get it. You don't want the certain <laughs> regiments after you. That's fine. But I'm just saying we have these pieces that are very clearly expendable. You know, maybe you don't get the perfect piece. But you got to make an honest effort. And I don't know. I just I just don't think that's that. <laughs> I don't think it's that's not my number one option. Be. It's not my number yeah. one option. 
More on my number we one know option. What, we know what your number one <laughs> more, option more is. More on my number one option <laughs> actually coming out later this week. I think you guys are going to like uh, or, or hate potentially what I have coming out later this week. But I'll share that on Twitter if you're a follower. <laughs> anyway, right. we should move on. Quick break, quick break, and then back with part two of internal development part two. We'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, internal development part two, Electric Boogaloo, back again with our friend Durag, aka Durag Hoops. Durag, how you doing? Doing well, fellas. Um, excited to talk about my boy Mikel Bridges again. Uh, wish it was under some better circumstances. You know that playoff has got a lot of people with some bad taste in their mouth. But we're gonna talk through some of the positives. You know, kind of reframe expectations. Hopefully, you know we can be, we can be better, closer to this year's actual outcome. Yeah, it's it, you know it's funny to talk about Mikel Bridges you know, from the lens of almost almost as if it was a disappointing season when he was literally voted as a defensive. He got defensive player of the year votes <laughs> in this last season. And the Suns were really good. And he was really good defensively. Mm-hmm. So, but the, the expectations, you know, it's funny with Mikel because I've made this joke before, but uh, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Jimmy Butler, those are three guys that are wing players. All three of those guys had sort of late career, not late career, but like slower offensive development than a lot of NBA stars. And those three guys being like small forward, power forward guys, every NBA fan who has a young small forward slash power forward on their team will make the case that if you compare their stats to one of those three guys, that they could still end up turning into one of those three guys. You know, I think we've heard the Mikael Bridges, Kawhi Leonard uh, projection before in the past, but I think those are now dead, right? <laughs> like that people probably aren't projecting Mikael Bridges is going to be anything like Kawhi Leonard. Anymore, never say right? never. I'm I mean, not somebody pro- might. I'm not projecting it. I'm not going to put my foot out there and project it. I'm just saying never say never. You've got some of these guys, Steve Nash, you know, to, to if we look back into Suns history, guys who were late bloomers and they're 30, mm. age 30 and beyond. You're so saying Mikael saying, Bridges is going to win two MVPs. 
At, in, yeah, <laughs> Mikhail Bridges is going to blossom, and at around yeah. age 32 and 33, he'll be a two-time right. MVP. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> all right. I'm glad we uh, we covered it all. We the busy episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining, Durag. See you next year. <laughs> We have okay, so we've split this up into three segments as we talk about these guys, and I think this will be an interesting conversation about Mikael Bridges in particular because I almost feel like I have to make the case that he was good this last season when it was obvious that he was good. But the first question is, who is he? Who is Mikael Bridges? I think there's an obvious thing that stands out when it comes to what we think Mikael Bridges is. But Durag, when you think about Mikael Bridges, what's the first thing you think of? I think a glue. Um a connector it's really what he is man right as of right now that's the role that he's been placed into he's uh just a guy who has a bunch of roles um whether that's you know being the the kind of uh floor spacer that he's tasked with being a uh, transition finisher defensive ace you know whatever his role is he's kind of always going to be a pretty top end outcome on that so that's what he is. He's a he's a guy who's got maybe not in a super elite skill other than perimeter defense, um, but he's like a master of none, kind of great at everything kind of guy. So, forgive the uh, the painfully reductive analysis here to to hop on what you're saying there, but like kind of most badges out of anyone on the roster, but no Hall of Fame <laughs> badges. Is that is that kind of what we're going for? Man, so just kind of talking 2K. Uh, this new one looks pretty cool, pretty fun. Um, yeah, but that's what he is, man. He's a bunch of silver badges. You know, he's going to, like, <laughs> exploit certain matchups because of them. But he's not, you know, I think it's pretty clear that uh, our expectations were, my expectations were a tad too high last time on this internal development pod. But we'll get into some realistic outcomes. But, yeah, he's he's the glue guy, man. He's, uh, whatever you need him to do, he's going to do it without, without, you know, complaint, question. And he's just going to go out there and ball. So yeah. you always need somebody like that. I mean, he's a player that you could put on any team in the NBA and he fits and he just kind of works uh, because of uh, because of his defense. So that's that's the thing I was kind of leading at is is I think the first thing I think of with him is defense. But I think you bring up a good point that offensively, he also just kind of does the things that you need players to be able to do around stars. Like you kind of need guys like Mikael Bridges that are relatively low usage, but efficient with their touches and are not trying to over-dribble the ball when you're next to an NBA star. Uh, so offensively, he does that too. But defensively, I think that is the first thing that that I think of when it comes to Mikael Bridges. And look, I understand, and this has sort of painted all of our coverage during the offseason, that a lot of people listening to this are just thinking about the Mavericks <laughs> and the series <laughs> against the Mavericks. And there's these highlights of Luka Doncic scoring on Mikael Bridges or anyone else over and over and over again in their heads. But beyond that, Mikael Bridges, I'll, I'll ha- I have some stats defensively on him. He was in the 98th percentile of usage tier one guys defended. So uh, B-ball index puts these guys in tiers of usage. So tier one of usage, meaning the guys who, are the best offensive players on the other team. He's in the 98th percentile of those guard, guarding those guys. And in terms he played of possession the most time, to, in to terms of possession yeah. time, exactly. And he played the most minutes in the NBA. Mikel Bridges this last season, 2854 minutes, most minutes in the NBA. And those two stats combined essentially say 
that no player in the NBA guarded the best player on the other team more than Mikael Bridges last season. Mikael Bridges did it more than anyone else in the NBA, essentially. And uh, and that's kind of what he does, and that's what he's tasked to do. And I think this year, more than even previous years, he was asked to guard guards. Like he was guarding essentially guys like Damian Lillard, Steph Curry, guys like that more than he was in previous seasons. Mm-hmm. And that sort of ask of him, I think, is what led to the Suns having such a great team defense but also what led to him getting Defensive Player of the Year votes because it's difficult to quantify perimeter defense in the same way that it's kind of easy to quantify rim protection. So in order to actually get those kind of votes, you have to guard the best players over and over and over and over again on the best defense or one of the best defenses, and that's how Mikael Bridges got the credit that uh, he got this last season. But defensively, what do you think about Mikael Bridges' do-rag? I mean, you have to love his defense. You know, he uh, like you said previously, he might be the NBA's best at defending the, those top usage guys, just based on a possession, uh, the amount of possessions that he he logs on them. But not only that, you know, you got a guy who doesn't foul out. I mean, when was the last time Mikel fouled out of a game? You know, not only is his um, is he guarding those people, but he's doing it effectively without fouling, so he's not putting them in the bonus. You know, that's that goes a long way team team defensively. Um, I would say that his best his best skill is clearly guarding the perimeter, which kind of goes back to last year's point of he's a two. You know, he's a, in my opinion, he is the future two for this team. Um, maybe we have a one in the future that plays like a Saito defensive point forward-ish role, um, Alonzo Ball-esque type player. You know, shooting threes, passing, playing some defense, and Mikhail can you know interchange with with guards or forwards defensively. Um, I think ultimately what we learned in the playoffs was that he's a really good and disruptive defender, but he can't necessarily be the catalyst to the defense being otherworldly. So you know, he logged crazy great possessions on. Brandon Ingram, on Luka Doncic, on CJ McCollum, um, but we he wasn't able to necessarily have the impact in in enough games to, you know, swing outcomes. The, the one that really comes to mind is his crazy offensive explosion where he also shut down B.I. Mm-hmm, um, probably his yeah. best playoff game, right? 31, 31 points in that game, his only 20-point game in the entire playoff run this year. Mm-hmm. 31 points he also shut down CJ the majority of the game and then at the end of the game was switched on to BI because he was killing Jay Crowder and blocked him in one of the more important possessions of the game but like A really impressive game it's interesting there what you're saying that though Durag about like you know impact because you're kind of you're hitting at the core of what I guess not to make this a defensive player of the year argument now or anything, but like you're kind of hitting at the core, the crux of this issue of what people's complaint was about Mikhail Bridges and Marcus Smart ultimately leading narrative wise that race this year is that, well, yes, we, we recognize that these guys are great defenders and, and, and that they take on the most challenging assignments and that they play for top five defenses, but are they anchoring in a way that, that you want them to in order to be rewarded? Um, in that sort of way. And so, you know, I think with Mikhail, what's really interesting is, like, if you look at this B-ball index data, this possession data, too, I think you hit the nail on the head, Durag, when you're talking about he's a two. He spent 
56% of his possession time per B-ball index guarding point guards and shooting guards. And a lot of that fits into exactly what Mike is talking about because a lot of the time it's just point guards and shooting guards just happen to be those high usage players. They happen to mm-hmm. be, you know, mm-hmm. those guys who you would want uh, him to be, you know, versus like the kind of low usage three and D guys. But I do think we also, we are approaching a point with Mikhail where we all understand that his perimeter defense is fantastic and we all understand he's very disruptive. At the same time, ironically, it's not the Luka Doncic's who who give me like, who worry me too much necessarily in the future going forward with Mikhail Bridges. It's, you know, like I think he can handle the Luka Doncic's. I think he can handle the, yeah. and the more as, traditional. As long as you're not switching him off of them over and over. Exactly. And over it was, it was yeah. more, it was more just yeah. a stupid, stubborn defensive system and their approach to that series that led to their downfall. But with Mikhail, it's about, he's still not the strongest guy and he still shies away from the post-defensive assignments. Now, a lot of that is by design because for the past two years, the Suns have mm-hmm. had Jay Crowder. Yeah, he might not be able to shy away from that they, going he, forward. They might not be able to shy away from that for too much longer. Cam Johnson might have to start embracing those assignments instead. And when I'm talking about those assignments, obviously I'm talking about a healthy Kawhi Leonard, LeBron mm-hmm. James, Anthony Davis. We all, you know, we all know who the big forwards are who are so imposing and who are so important. Mikhail is... Yeah. Mikhail's yeah, Carl Towns. That's a that's a great example of a guy mm-hmm. who's going to be going to be playing the four this year. So for Mikhail, he's like matchup wise, he's incredible with what he's been able to do with guys on the perimeter. He's always going to live up to his contract at a minimum because of his impact there. <laughs> I guess as we focus on what expectations are for him going forward, is it even reasonable? For us to be like, well, you were the defensive player of the year runner-up, so now we need you to bulk up and guard Carl Anthony Towns too. Like, is that <laughs> is that reasonable of an expectation for us, or do we have to kind of pull it back a little bit and rein it in with with what we're expecting from Mikael Bridges? Are, on the are defensive we end? in in that question? Are we trading Jay Crowder for a nothing on defense? I, I like yeah. Well, because if you trade, <laughs> yeah. this is because, the problem again with trading Jay right. Crowder for Boyan, right? Because exactly, we're, we're kind of admitting that. Mikhail can't do that. He can't take those assignments, and maybe it's not fair to expect him to. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I would say that um, it's it's super interesting to frame this in a in a context about our what arguably third, fourth, fifth best player, depending on who you're speaking to. Um, but to maximize Mikhail defensively, you know, a small guard hiding in the corner who doesn't add to the rebounding or true defensive versatility of the team, uh, mm. it, it hurts everybody. So you I can't think, guard point guards either. You, yeah, so the you know the switch is almost automatic in that instance because he doesn't want to stay on point guards, you know. And if they're looking for a weak link, Chris Paul is an easy target, you know, whether whether that be point guards or forwards. So I just think framing it in a in a light of our third or fourth fifth best player is not maximized. And at the end of the day, is that like a super big deal? Um, to some people, yes. To others, no. I would say that Mikhail, I believe, has the potential to reach second best player on a playoff team ceiling. We've seen it in the finals, in my opinion, when he had 24 points and was playing elite defense. Um, we've seen it when he did it against BI and dropped 31 this year. I just, he's got that in him to, to be a game changer on both ends. But I think the context does have to be taken into account, and we have to realize that it's it's not perfect. And it might not be perfect this year, but in the future, 
if we still have this same core group of guys of Mikhail, DeAndre, Book, and, and uh, Cam Johnson, I think it's pretty easy, in my opinion, to find multiple guys who could plug in as that fifth player and plug plug those roles um, to add defensive versatility or to add offensive versatility and maximize them more. You're saying I, I it's, think- it's easy to replace Chris Paul. <laughs> defensively, I think defensively, you're, right. yes. you're defensively, <laughs> yeah. you're a ten thousand percent correct. But yeah, offensively, offensively, it's I like, don't know. <laughs> and th- this is kind of the the whole central point of all of these discussions, right? Because like, it, as we go through this series again this year, if Cam Johnson, DeAndre Ayton, and Mikael Bridges in particular all make the offensive leaps, like the best case scenario offensive leaps that we're going to lay out for them then fuck Chris Paul, right? Like, yeah, it would be, <laughs> yeah. it would but be they very, never do, right? at yeah. a certain it point, w- it would be very easy to replace Chris Paul because I think, again, when, when we talk about maybe Mikhail Bridges isn't able to take on all of these defensive assignments, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once, like <laughs> we're placing that responsibility on him when it's not his fault. It is Chris Paul's fault that he has to assume that role in the first place. So there very much is that element of if you could replace Chris Paul with someone who's not five foot eleven and you know doesn't have to take corner shooters, that would be great for this team going forward. But you also need to get the offense, and that's where the other side of the ball comes in, and that's where it's so critical that he actually makes strides on offense this year. That I think the three of us all equally have projected in the past, but but like you know just wasn't realized last season. Just, yeah, more or less. I, I just want to remind everyone listening. There's a chance we would have been in game seven in round one if Chris Paul didn't go 14 for 14 <laughs> against the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, and it's just tough to imagine the impact of him being gone on the offense. But I think you're right. Defensively, it does sort of force Mikhail Bridges into these matchups. And it does, you know, the thing is, is you don't have to switch as much as they switch. That's the main issue. Not to beat a dead horse here. I do have some more stats I want to get to when when talking about Mikhail Bridges, just to illustrate who he is a little bit. 36.9% from three, 3.8 attempts per game. Not enough uh, three-point attempts in my opinion. Also a lower three-point percentage than he shot in the previous year, which in the finals year he shot very well from three. This year it went down a little bit. He played a ton of minutes. And and this is the thing about Mikael Bridges that I think we're going to have to talk about going forward. He plays the most minutes in the NBA guarding the most difficult matchups. Maybe expecting him to do a lot on the offensive end is asking a lot considering the amount of minutes he plays chasing around the best offensive players in the NBA over and over and over again. And maybe that's not something we factored in last year. Um, But 78.79% adjusted field goal percentage at the rim. One of the better finishers in the NBA. He's just really good at finishing at the rim. Now attacking the rim is a different story. He's not a guy who's going to do that over and over and over again. Uh, but 1.33 points per possession in transition. For those who don't know, points per possession, that's really good. That's that's really, really good. Um, what, this is an interesting stat. 1.35 points per shot is how much he scores in the NBA. That just shows how efficient he is, even when factoring in the dip in three-point percentage that he had uh, last season. This is all very efficient. And just a little bit more points per possession stats. And this is one that actually surprised me a little bit. 0.96 points per possession as the pick and roll ball handler. So we've talked about this last year on our episode. And this is a big thing with Mikhail Bridges that we're going to talk about going forward. Can he create 
as a pick and roll ball handler? Can he start the plays instead of be at the end of the plays? And that's, that's pretty good. And then we know he's good at cutting. He has a high points per possession as a cutter. And then even as a roll man, which I think is an important stat here, he's setting more screens, mostly slipping from screens because he's essentially asked to be the short roll playmaker in trap scenarios now because nobody else on the Suns is really capable of doing that except for maybe Dario when he comes back. But uh, 1.25 points per, per possession as a roll man, that's almost entirely from mid-range shots where he shot incredibly well this last season on short little pull-up mid-range shots. That's a lot of stats to talk about his offense, but what stands out to you, Dureg? Um, yeah, so I have I did a, I did a little bit of research myself. Um, was really interested to, to look at that mid-range specifically because I thought that was something that we talked about last time that could show improvement. And I think his overall attempts went, went up by a pretty decent margin. And then I just wanted to track and see... Um, like dribbles right how many dribbles was he taking on these shots and which direction was he going because i think that says a lot about scheme but it also says a lot of like player tendencies so um i can went I, in can i, I, can I yeah, yes. yeah go sure just uh, the direction thing is really interesting to me because i mm-hmm. also looked at volume right like that's that's pretty natural but i mm-hmm. really like where you're going with direction um he went left most of the time yeah right, right? Yeah. yeah. Am, am I wrong? Okay. No, That's what you're it feels 100% like. But, correct. But I'm interested in what your data says, so go ahead. Yeah, so uh I basically charted for I believe it was fifteen to nineteen feet is what they have on NBA.com for shots outside of the paint. So I didn't chart the the actual paint touches because he shot significantly better there um mm-hmm. than the, the, the fifteen to nineteen feet. So from fifteen to nineteen feet he went left where he dribbled 21 times and then he went right 10 times um last season he went left nine times and he went right Mm -hmm. six times so he does have a left hand preference which makes sense as just a a shooter you know the the left hand gather is pretty easy for shooters because the hands uh your 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 shooting pocket and your hand and your your uh, elbow are like directly at the rim if you're using your left hand to pick up the ball and you're right-handed. So it makes sense. A lot of like right-hand players have this tendency. So it's not too abnormal. Including Booker. Right. But the the key thing was that he only made five out of the 21 left-hand attempts this year in the regular season. So that was super interesting to me. Um, I wanted to blame the hand injury, but I'm just not convinced that that's really the whole story there. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. But I do think that losing confidence in your right hand, uh, dribbling with your offed hand and picking it up with your offed hand, and then your your main shooting hand is injured and, and bugging you with that that piece of tape that he had, you know, mm-hmm. constantly messing with. Um, I think that could potentially affect these percentages. So then I also charted the uh, ones in the playoffs. So in the playoffs, he went left nine times. Guess how many times he went right. Mm, one less than five one one time one time (laughs) one time and i think that also shows um one he's like stationed in that right corner so if you if you dribble right you know you're going right towards the baseline out of bounds if you dribble left you know you're going towards the middle of the floor Mm -hmm. um but it also shows that like you know chris paul booker they like going that direction too 
so somebody needs to go left you know yeah yeah Yeah, i think it's really interesting and and especially what you're talking about there with the shooting pocket too like does it say something about mikhail's hesitancy to go all the way and attack the rim because i think that would balance out a little bit more you'd have a little bit more of a right-handed preference as a righty um in terms of getting an explosive edge if you were planning on going all the way to the rim attacking the right side yeah but if you're just going to do a one dribble pull up which let's be honest is all Mikhail is doing most of the time, then mm-hmm. I think you would start to see that reflected in the data that, yeah, he's just going left right into the comfortability of the shooting pocket, and he doesn't actually have the intention of going all the way. That shot is going up immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something the Mavs, you know, credit Jason Kidd, man. I, I hate to, to give the dude credit for, for anything, really. I just but give it to Igor Kokoshkov because he was the assistant coach. Yeah, I mean, they, they really scouted the hell out of the Suns, and they yep. essentially just picked on all of their tendencies. And I mean, you see, Luca Luca was constantly guarding Mikhail because they didn't view him as a true offensive threat. So he's giving him the soft hand closeout. Mikhail's dribbling right into that mid-range pocket with his left hand. And, you know, DA is kind of stationed either at the other elbow or, you know, kind of uh, second block area, whether left or right side. Um, And there's just, it's either take that shot or try to squeeze into the rim, try to look for DA, which I think kind of points to something he could improve upon, which is um, maybe looking for that dump off pass a little bit more. But I think they were also focused on having him be a threat. You know, force Luca to to guard you, force force him to to you know play on both ends of the court. So I think it was a little bit of, of everything. You know, I, I do want to point out. Uh, I know you were looking at in your statistics um, non paint shots, but in the paint, but not in the restricted area. So not necessarily at the rim. He took quite a few shots this season. Two point five attempts per game. So And this, to me, a lot of times, and this is a shot, Sam, you and I brought up pretty consistently on the podcast this last year, where he would basically pump fake at the three-point line, dribble left, and shoot a sort of fading left shot from the paint instead of going all the way to the rim to try and shoot over guys that are sort of attached to DeAndre Ayton. And in those shots, he shot 57.7% um, in the paint, but not in the restricted area. So really, really efficient on like quite a few attempts overall in the season in the paint once he was able to get there but so many of those were pull-up shots and I do think that overall his efficiency which is also very great is sort of impacted by his inability to draw fouls it's actually really kind of similar to DeAndre Ayton because if you look at DeAndre Ayton's attempts in that same area the stats are pretty close 59.9 percent for Ayton I'm sure we'll talk about that on our Ayton episode soon uh, but Mikhail Bridges did find ways to to pull up on that shot fairly regularly and I thought it actually ended up being overall one of the more consistent shots for the Suns offense this last season well just to throw him a bone he shot 50% on all pull-up twos this season he shot 49% Mm -hmm. last season so essentially the same but he doubled the volume like clearly that is a good shot for him the question is just how many of those opportunities like you're saying there Mike are eight footers that really mm-hmm. take one more dribble and just, you know, <laughs> like persevere well, if, a little if bit. If Aiton wasn't in the paint, maybe he would, though, right? And I that mean, might like, be something the, the we... The Suns s- don't play a five-out system. It could be something we see with Sharich more this season that yeah, we've seen right. with, say, Kaminsky or or even, like, Aaron Baines in the past, prior seasons where Mikhail Bridges has played, for sure. Um, 
But I think, you know, what you were saying there about Mikhail and DeAndre having the same issue of this general contact avoidance, it continues to plague both of them. Like, it's the number one thing stopping both of those guys from achieving a new offensive height, for sure. Yeah, and I think just to kind of jump back just a tad bit uh, to the in the paint, non-restricted area, in the playoffs, that number dropped dramatically. So it was only at 34% this year. So in the regular season, he was hovering around 50, you know, 50, whatever. Uh, in, the, in the playoffs, it dropped 20%. There, it's only 32 total attempts, but that's a decent amount. Um, and it just, yeah, there was just something off, man. He just couldn't, mm-hmm. he, play, he played right into the scouting report, essentially. And uh, I think that's something that's pretty easily correctable. What I was talking about earlier about the, you know, in our pre, pre-recording space of like the puzzle piece, you know, it has to be a really... It has to be the perfect puzzle piece to build upon. And I think something like this, which is it's been scouted now for probably two years because the data reflects the same in in last season, that he has a left-hand preference, just consistently trying to um, either generate contact to draw that foul because he did have quite a few uh, like and-one opportunities or foul opportunities going that direction. Um mm-hmm. That stuff, I think, is like those little puzzle pieces that are easily buildable, and you can continue to expand his game without really changing role or anything dramatic. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I know we're sort of mixing in how he can improve here too, but uh, you know, looking at those stats that you're looking at specifically in the playoffs, the thing to me that stands out is just the lack of corner three point shots that he took. Is a weird thing in the playoffs where his overall three point percentage or three-point attempts also went down and I do think this is part of the I know we've been joking on the podcast about Monty Williams internal development episodes coming but that's sort of mixed in with all of these guys and for Monty I think finding ways to get these guys open more from the three-point line would help a lot I do think that there was so much of him hammering it into these guys to attack the rim over and over and over again whether it be the Mavs who didn't really have an interior presence Mm -hmm. or Uh, the Pelicans who Devin Booker was missing for a significant portion of that series. I think that at some point, Mikel Bridges being that perfect role player, that's sort of how we've been describing him, a guy who can fit in and be the glue. As you talked about, uh, you got to shoot more threes (laughs) at a certain point. It's just, just more like, yeah. And I think a lot of the Suns players, the Suns need to shoot more threes in general. I think that's sort of something that they have to figure out a way to do uh, going forward. But Mikel Bridges in particular and you brought it up. We we do have to be fair to him. He doesn't miss games, right? So he had a dislocated finger and just kept playing. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the difference in his shooting from this year to last year. That had a lot to do with it. You know, he stopped shooting a lot of threes. At a certain point, there were games where he shot zero threes after that dislocated finger. And when he did shoot, for a few weeks, that percentage dropped pretty dramatically. And that had a pretty large impact on his overall production when it comes to three-point shooting. But... By the time the playoffs rolled around, he was pretty much back. And that total uh, amount of three-point attempts that he was taking, it just has to be, it's got to be higher for him at some point. Yeah, this yes, year was agreed. Th- This year was a career low for him in terms of three-point attempt rate. You mentioned it at the very beginning, Mike, like lower than four threes per 36 minutes for him. For a guy who shoots in the upper 30s to at best low 40s percentage, is like kind of getting unheard of these days. Like there aren't that many guys like that around left in the league. Most most guys, if you could shoot 40% from deep, you're being encouraged to chuck. 
You know, you're being encouraged to fire off six plus at a minimum, like on a per 36 basis or whatever. Uh, and the Suns seem to do the same with Mikhail Bridges. He just he needs to shoot. Yeah. He needs to shoot, even if the percentage dips a little bit more. Um, it's it's not 2019 anymore. You know, rookie slash sophomore year, Mikhail Bridges, when we were legitimately worried about his shot release and his hitch or, or whatever and if <laughs> right. he was ever gonna like doesn't that feel like such ancient history now but it's like now that he he has those reps he has several years of reps um and several years of confidence and moment, momentum building he just yeah. needs to take a lot more threes he, no he doubt. played two he played 200 more minutes this season than last season over 200 more minutes and shot less three point attempts in this season well season. i mean because you know it's a tough balance because a lot of it was you know in the reaction after the loss to milwaukee was i need to be more of a, a go-getter and that's where this mid-range volume came from you know so like we can't criticize it entirely because yeah. where are those where are those attempts coming from that he took from the mid-range this year he's taking those out of his three-point volume i guess what we're asking from him going forward is do do both you know <laughs> don't <laughs> like just take just take more shots take more shots well from that's everywhere, what's kind dude. of fascinating and, and let me let me just make this point yes this is the ultimate point if you're mikhail bridges based on the data there is no such thing as a bad shot you're a good finisher you're a solid like average at worst mid-range shooter and you're a good three-point shooter there's no such thing as a bad shot you just need the confidence and the mentality take more shots yeah take more shots and, and this sort of transitions into how he can improve. And I think this is what's fascinating about looking at him. Because if you look at just his box score stats from this last season, I'll just go through his points per game since his rookie season. 8.3, 9.1, 13.5, and then 14.2 last season. So that the points are going up every single year. But then if you look at the per 36 numbers, his overall field goal attempts, so field goal attempts per minute essentially, went from 10.3 to 10.8. You know, it's like half an attempt overall in his per 36 numbers. You know, he just didn't shoot more this season. And I think part of that is on him and his aggressiveness. And like I said, we have to factor in the concept of him guarding the best players over and over and over and over again. And like, how much energy do you have to, to bring it on the offensive end at the same time? Uh, but I think another part of that is just Monty Williams. Like at the beginning of the season, I do feel like they were running more pick and rolls for Mikel Bridges. There was some level of experimentation to see what he could do within the pick and roll. And that's a combination, of course, of shooting himself, which I think most of the time he did. He took mid-range shots himself. But the other part of that is finding ways to create for others. I guess I, I, I'll ask Durag, how confident are you in his ability to continue to be that kind of creator? Because the results, most of the time, were pretty good, but they just ended up going away from that as the season rolled along. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think a lot of that really depends on the development of Aiton. Um, him and Mikhail have a pretty special connection. I think DeAndre specifically... You know, not to get into like DeAndre Ayton or anything too much here, but like some of his weaknesses, I think, compound the weaknesses of Mikhail Bridges. Like he, DeAndre doesn't necessarily process defensive plays at the same speed as Mikhail. So if Mikhail makes a rotation, you know, DeAndre might make that first rotation, but he's not making the second, third backline one. Where, you know, if, if Mikhail had maybe somebody who processed a little bit quicker in that regard, 
we might see a more disruptive Mikhail because his anticipatory skills are insane. It's just he can't always break the scheme because not everybody else can compensate, right? So offensively, I think that's kind of the same thing where like he can, we can incrementally increase his, his attempts or we can just really throw this guy to the wolves and say, take 17 shots, you know, for the first 10 games. Um, force Aiton to be your pick and roll partner and and what does that do for for us how does Chris adjust how does Book adjust Um, I think that it can yield super super good results the guy's a pretty great passer Um, he's got you know a high release point with his passes thanks to super long arms he's got the mid-range ability to, to be an offensive threat from that area of the floor to collapse the defense so I think it's all there you know like the the makings of somebody who could be effective in that role are there. Um, I don't necessarily think the ball handling is super special, but I also don't think it's too big of a hindrance either. Um, so yeah, man, I think I think Mikhail's got a lot of the skills that you need. It's just really about taking advantage, and and the conversation's a tad tiring to you know to reiterate that stuff. But at the same time, we're we're talking about a thirty-seven-year-old man who has refused to really adjust to the level that we want, you know, or that that people have been begging for. And I think uh, hopefully those conversations have have happened this this year and we get to see more of the young guys kind of embrace a more on-ball on-ball role. It's interesting because the the debate will continue to be does that make the Suns better <laughs> uh, for Chris Paul to find ways to play off the ball compared to the utility he brings on the ball. I think that's that's the the main thing with Chris Paul in general is and this is why I've been trying to make the case Sam with you and uh, other places as well of Chris Paul not necessarily taking a back seat, maybe playing less minutes overall, but also maybe skipping some games every now and then uh, don't play on back-to-backs because that puts the players in position to where when Chris Paul is out of the game entirely, they have to find ways to be more creative in that case. Whereas I think when you start moving Chris Paul off the ball, teams are just not going to defend him. They and don't really do. They, they need they, to, they I, don't. you know, they, they, don't. they really don't need to. Yeah. So at some point you have to wonder if like, if just finding a, system where he plays off the ball makes any sense you know it's, it's a difficult balance to to try it's, and um, achieve they're also you know because i don't want to go too hard after chris paul right there are plenty of minutes where chris paul is also off the floor so if we're just talking about rotations i mean like can i put on my conspiracy cap for a moment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah is the is is James Jones trying to build an intentionally bad bench this year like is kind of <laughs> is kind of the goal <laughs> Cause, well, because I'm thinking about it because, Durag, a couple minutes ago you mentioned, like, th- you said throw him to the wolves. I think that's what you said about Mikhail. And it's like, well, I mean, the more logical, the more reasonable explanation, right, is just that they focused all their energy on Kevin Durant and then we're like, shit, we didn't do anything else to address our bench. But I kind of like the the plausible, in my opinion, explanation of they – intentionally handicapped themselves by giving themselves campaign and Landry Shamit again, part two electric boogaloo, <laughs> which means that it, that 
ample opportunity has opened up for Mikael Bridges and DeAndre Ayton to run some time with those second units and force feed them the ball and say what you will about campaign. But actually I think campaign can play pretty well with basically anyone off the ball. I think his, his catch and shoot numbers continue to be pretty good. He moves the ball. Well, he doesn't turn it over and mm-hmm. defensively he's fine. So, you know, he tries, like, he tries he's taller off. than Chris Paul. Like you could, you could play. <laughs> he's, not, Mik- he's not a tiny guy. You could play Mikhail and Ayton more in the second unit with campaign and low key that might kick ass. I don't know. Like in certain combinations, it might. And and obviously that you know that takes away from your starting lineup, and you still need to have your starting lineup and your closing lineup. But the other thing about that is you could just play Josh Okoji and Bismack Biombo with Booker and Paul, and you know that lineup's going to be like neutral at worst, right? Like they'll be fine. So mm. on the uh, the other flip side of it is James Jones is intentionally building a disastrously bad bench to force Mikhail Bridges into more pick and roll <laughs> on ball opportunity. You're insane, Sam. It, you're insane, but like <laughs> the fact that it's kind of possible, you know, it's just It's 4D chess by James Jones is kind of <laughs> No one no one's got a read on the man, you know? Like Let's go even further. The Suns were never even interested The Suns were never even interested in Kevin Durant. It was all a ruse just so that they could build impossible. the worst possible bench. Just so that uh, they had pl- just so that they had plausible deniability, plausible deniability. <laughs> to not replace Campaign and Landry Shamit. Yeah. I love it. I'm totally on board with this. Uh, the players who assisted DeAndre in the most last season, I, I think you guys could guess who did it the most, right? Easily Chris Paul. <laughs> Chris Paul, 2.4 assists per game. And the second most, do you want to guess? Devin uh, Paris Bass. <laughs> it's Devin Booker, yes. Oh, okay, damn. Third, do you want to guess? Mikael Bridges. Mikael Bridges, correct. Mikael Bridges, just 0.3. Uh, assists per game behind Devin Booker uh, at point zero point eight assists per game to DeAndre Ayton. You, you're talking about uh, Mikael Bridges being a good passer. I agree with you. I think he's actually a really good passer. And I think that you can make the case, just based on these stats alone, but just watching the games, that he is, outside of Chris Paul and Devin Booker, the best on the team at getting the ball to DeAndre Ayton. I think a combination of the high release point that you're talking about, Durag, is 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 one reason, but also just his general feel for the game. He cuts to the right spots. He passes to the right spots. He's real smart with it when it comes to the ball. And finding a way to maximize the connection that they have, Mikael Bridges and DeAndre, and I think it's pretty smart. Find find a way to to get him to use that uh, even more. And I think that's that's a smart thing. Sam what else do you have as far as what you think Mikhail Bridges could improve on going forward? Um, I have a note here about rebounding, but we had the same note with Cam Johnson, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same exact conversation. So I don't know how interesting it is. It's by the numbers. Mikhail Bridges is a pretty bad rebounder. And I think, you know, for his size. And I think a lot of that is strength based. And a lot of that is the same sort of stuff of that, that we were talking about with his defensive. Could you transition him for being more of a perimeter guy into taking on more difficult assignments, being a true four, right? Less of a two and more of like a three, four. Uh, but the other part of it is to me, it's the same thing with cam where if you have a guy who's literally one of the best transition offensive players in the NBA, you don't want to take that away. So I I struggle to see like a situation where Mikhail Bridges ever has a good defensive rebounding season, but that doesn't mean he can't improve as like an offensive rebounder. 
Uh, I just don't know if there's ways to do that that isn't just as simple as like, yeah, gain 15 pounds of muscle, which I don't think is particularly helpful as analysis. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, it's it's that's a tough conversation in general. Uh, I, I've talked about it before. I think there's an element of as soon as you add rebounding to the Suns, their offense just gets worse. <laughs> and there's just a balance you have to take. The guys that are good rebounders are usually not at the power forward position are usually not great shooters and you have to find that right balance of providing space for Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton. And I think maybe that space is more important than a few rebounds a game that you're losing so, as a so, result of having a shooter. So hear me out on this hypothetical. How is it Julius uh, Randle? How sold because are you I, I on can't it? do it. <laughs> I can't I'll, do Julius Randle. I, I do admit when you, when you mentioned guys who are rebounders and can shoot, my brain did fire some neurons that went to a certain place but we don't have to talk about it we don't have to talk about it <laughs> i would ahead, you know my, my brain fired to to kevin love in all honesty but um you know that's that ship's probably sailed with how good they're gonna be yeah uh, but transition outlet passer rebounder shooter that's that's yeah. kind of k-love anyway my and question I'd immediately was ask for him to play center <laughs> right, yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, my, my question was, how sold are you on the idea of someone like Josh Akogi playing heavy minutes with the Twins, Book, and DeAndre? Um, mm. Takes away that defensive responsibility from McHale, adds a rebounder, adds somebody who's going to move the ball and not really take away shots. They're not going to guard him, but mm-hmm. that's that's like an interesting thing, in my opinion, to, yeah. to kind of think about. Um a lot of defensive versatility there and then i think you have enough offense in truth with those four um just based on you know their their previous stats and the system the suns run like they're gonna get open shots sam you seem to be more sold on that than me right well that's gonna be kind of like our james harden matisse thibel combo right like Right. They're obvious there there's an obvious offensive limitation there you said it yourself they're not gonna guard him uh, that being said, in the past, like I, I was really high on a Kogi in under the circumstances of bringing in Kevin Durant <laughs> when it was like he was going to be forced to play, mm-hmm. and I thought he could play a really big role on this team. Um, I mean, he's a dog defensively. Like him and McHale is 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 just loads of energy, and you talk about like the defensive versatility, yes, but also like just the the sheer number of defensive miles covered by those two guys in one lineup would be kind of scary. I just, I need to see if he has developed and the answer is probably no, but (laughs) any semblance of like a reliable corner three before we throw him heavy minutes in any sort of lineup that needs to succeed. You know what I mean? So so you're, you don't find any use uh, versatility or usefulness in him just like being a a legit, just screen setter from the guard position. Cause that's probably what they'd, they'd have him as right. He'd be like the side of one, where books bring how, the how many up, how many you know. screens did Landry Shamit set last year? <laughs> like four? Oh my god, dude, Monty, bro. It's something he, I know yeah. you and I were asking about. That's why I gotta ask you, Drag. But I expected them to bring in Landry Shamit specifically to do that. Monty doesn't seem to use guards as a screener. I mean, you can you can make a case that at some point Devin Booker should have been screening for Chris Paul. They don't do that either. Really, they I mean, do that. More, that they fake. do that more than they do. It's with more Shaman, of a ghost though. screen. He, like they fake that more than they actually use it. Mm. You know, they're not trying to force switches. They don't really use that, it for traps. You know, that's another know. gripe of mine. Nobody on the sun sets a freaking screen. Like, 
It's if, all slips. <laughs> oh my god! It, yeah. it, it frustrates well, hey, the let's, me, man. Well, let's JaVale talk did. about whoa, 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 who's the king of that. Let's remember for a second before this becomes Landry Shaman internal development. Let's remember <laughs> that's let's, the Patreon episode. Let's remember what episode we're on right here. The king of slips. Have we even talked yeah. about it? Is Mikhail Bridges? Yeah, yeah, he's very good at it. We've yeah. talked about it a little bit, but he's he's the guy who does that the most. Now, where I'm coming from, that's mostly a good thing. Well, the reason he screens is specifically when they're trapping, so slips make sense, right? Right, and 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 it allows him to showcase his playmaking, and theoretically, if he wants to become a more aggressive scorer, it puts him into adaptive, like scenarios that that really allow him to showcase that. Like if he's practicing anything this off season, I would hope yeah. he's continuing to slip a lot You're of right. screens. But yeah. but I would I would hope more specifically that he's, you know, not just like running through. And and trust me, I don't think he's only doing this, right? But, like, not just running through the stationary and movement shooting drills or whatever. Like, I want him playing five-on-five basketball and, like, getting as much experience as possible, slipping those screens, and then simulating that experience of being at that elbow over and over again and attacking from that position and really exploiting mismatches. Which, you know, how much can he really... I guess the question is just balancing that value there, which to me is pretty tremendous in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things of what it could do for the Suns' offense versus Mikhail Bridges just, you know, setting a real screen, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more often and kind of rolling like a, a traditional four. That's a good point. I think, I, I, you know, I hate to be, like, going back on my word, but I don't think th- that applies to him specifically. I think it really yeah. applies to, like, our, our bigs, our true bigs. Mm. Um, yeah. I think Aiton does a, like, he slips, and he just slips to nowhere, and it, it frustrates me so much. It's like, bro... If you're gonna slip, you have to do something with the ball, and I think. Well, they don't give it to him. I mean, because he hasn't shown the exactly. He hasn't shown enough juice to to hit the cutter on the move to yeah to do anything but really shoot. Which which isn't a bad thing. The guy's an amazing shooter. He's got tremendous touch. I just wish he was a little bit more like versatile in that sense. Um, Well, I think the Mavs showed that, and this is more of a DeAndre internal development episode. But the Mavs showed that if you play up on him in that scenario. Uh, you know, with a third defender, basically, and take away his mid-range space, he doesn't have the ability of getting around them or quickly finding the shooter enough for them to not be able to rotate. So I think you're right. I think that's why Mikel Bridges is used more, and I think using him as a screener makes a lot of sense. It does make me wonder, and this happens with these guys, and it's unfair to DeAndre, and it does make me wonder how these guys would operate in a five-out system, though. Would Mikel Bridges be better at attacking the rim in that scenario, or would he be better at finding shooters in that scenario when there's just more space when he does slip? Because right now there's always a guy sort of in the paint. It's an interesting question. I think that, like again, the the context of framing the team and optimizing our fourth, fifth, best player third fourth fifth best player it's like a funny thing to think about but i do think mikhail has that potential to be a second you know peg on a championship team i think he can give you 20 if you asked i think he could guard the one two best players on the team i think he could mm-hmm. play make three four assists a game if given those opportunities so you think you think he can do this stuff on well because i just think there's a big difference in what you're saying you think he can do this on a championship team I do, I do. Because I you're, you're in, that, like, in the right context. I, think, I mean, I think he could be Jeremy Grant easily and average 20 points per game on maybe not the prettiest efficiency. But that's a far cry from being number two on a championship team who gives you 20-plus I mean, and also plays lockdown defense. 
I mean, the guy took 10 shots and averaged almost 15, 15 points a game. I mean, give him five more shots and shit, he might be at 20 without, you know, a lot, a lot, you know, one extra, one extra shot at a quarter. So, yeah. you know, I just, I think it's possible. I really do. Yeah, I just, that's fair. I, step I, I, one fair. is step one just always comes back to take more shots. We don't know yes. until you actually take more shots. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I just, again, I think the context is so important there. Like, I don't want to keep reiterating like everybody else's faults and trying to avoid Mikhail's. But I do think that if you are convinced or convicted that Mikhail is or has the potential to be the number two on this team next to Booker, someone who like truly compliments him in all facets of the game. I think the guy might be that guy. And if you just really unleashed him or put him in a more favorable context with, with other players around him, I just think the sky's the limit in, in truth. Well, I'll tell you this. From what I've heard about how James Jones feels about Mikael Bridges, he has no plans to separate Mikael Bridges and Devin Booker anytime soon. I think he does think that those guys complement each other in a lot of ways. So I think that uh, I think that he probably agrees with you. So I mean, to to wrap up as far as Mikael Bridges, obviously, I think we 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 broke it down. Excellent defender, really great defender, uh, perfect role player when it comes to just filling in the gaps offensively and defensively has areas to improve whether it be shooting offensively more aggression i think that's the biggest thing when it comes to offense that we focused on strength when it comes to defense is there anything else that you guys would like to add before we wrap this one up i think we've established today that durag wants chris paul gone i think (laughs) kind of that's I was kind of getting that vibe, man, that that, that Mikhail <laughs> needs to hit these shots. You need to give him the five extra shots a game, give Aiden yeah. the five extra shots a game <laughs> so that we can get this old guy the hell out of there. Yeah. Would you like to respond to that <laughs> allegation? I love Chris Paul, um, but, you know, the dude's 37, 38, you know, <laughs> like we got one year, maybe two with him at this useful quote-unquote level so it's just i don't know man we got to start you hit him with the quote-unquote good <laughs> lord i mean dude. i mean i mean bro the guy's 14 for 14 in a close the guy's game. broken like- <laughs> the guy's broken whenever we need him most you know he like shut yeah. down mentally in game six and seven that like we yeah. we're, we're literally the, the laughing stock of the league like it's tough it's out rough. here we are the laughing yeah, stock we, we wouldn't have gotten out of the first that. round i mean like lo- losing him at the end of round two when we wouldn't even have been there without him is is an interesting argument to make I would ah, say. that's that's fair and and i'm not again <laughs> i love chris paul but i do think that we have to start preparing for the future without him because i'm not sure that he is the guy who who can get us back to that championship level and well uh, i'm glad that's on we're on the same page as far as not trading for boyan that's what you mean right <laughs> <laughs> I mean, shoot, I'll take I'll take Boyan and Clarkson, man. Is as long as the Nets, as long as the Nets are content with those guys coming back in a trade. If, oh, if there they, you go. If they if they prefer Shamit, Jay, and, and Dario, keep them, keep them. Excellent, you know? excellent point, Durag. Thank you so much for joining us. Make sure to follow Durag on Twitter at Durag Hoops. Is there anything else that you'd like to promote, Durag? Man, no, just uh, had to take a step back from the YouTube grind. Focus on you know myself, my family, but um, you know. I, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's always fun to talk basketball. If you ever need me to uh, talk about anything else, you know, I'm more than happy to do that. Appreciate you guys for this opportunity. Um, 
yeah man hope y'all are having you know a good a good day good life <laughs> yeah thanks Rick. mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day from movement whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.